last several weeks, we've been talking about how God has created us with intent. He wants us to experience his blessing and all its riches, but we have to cooperate with the creation as he has designed it. We have to accommodate ourselves to it. If we cut across the grain of God's creation, we'll find jagged edges in our lives. So it's important for us to understand the creation. So that's what we've been dealing with. And I want to go back to Genesis chapter 2 to talk about a very, very important topic this morning, one that is relevant to a lot of you where you stand right now. Look in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start reading with verse 18, but then I'll skip to verse 21. It says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. As it says in more traditional renderings, the man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. That is covenantal language. The man enters in to this marriage covenant. And then the man and the woman who are created from the same stuff, Adam from the dust and the woman from the man, who are both created in the image of God, yet are created different. As I said last week, delightfully different. They complement one another and they come together as one flesh. And from that union, from that union, they share in their own limited way in God's creative power. Children are born. Families are formed. All of this is because God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Therefore, he created the woman. Now, you remember, I was bringing up the what about questions. And one of the questions I want to deal with today, what about people who are not married? It is not good for a man or a woman to be alone, but then I am alone. That is, I don't have a spouse. And the truth is, some of us, will never have a spouse. That isn't what God has called us to. Our journey is such that we may very well be single for life. I'm not trying to strike fear in anyone's heart. But that's just the truth. So is this passage suggesting that if you are single, you are destined for loneliness? It's not good to be alone, but you don't have a spouse, so you're going to be alone. Does it mean that you cannot be fulfilled and happy as a child of God unless you are married? Is that what this passage is teaching? After all, it was, it was me who stood up here, read this passage, and said, here we have a pattern, God's pattern for our lives. Well, what about that pattern? It looks like the pattern is that everyone gets married. Is that so? Well, I brought up with me 
the employee handbook for First Woodway. Here it is. 10 pages long, doesn't sound long, but it's very small print. And there are lots of details here. One detail, gosh, it takes probably a full page, deals with PTO, paid time off. And every employee is allowed a certain amount of paid time off. If you don't use the, all the paid time off, it's not a violation of the personnel manual. It's, you're not violating any policy. We want to encourage people to take all their time off, but some don't for whatever reason. And they're certainly not violating the terms of their employment. But if they start taking extra time off, when they're supposed to be in the office, they're not in the office. When they're supposed to be here on Sunday, they're not here on Sunday. Well, that's something different. That's a violation. So there are, there's a difference between exceptions and violations. Now, you know when I'm reading a passage like this where I'm going with some issues. It's often said today there are 8 or 12 or 20 or 2,000 different genders. I can't keep track of the number. And it's obvious this passage has something to say to that. Or we debate in our culture about who should and shouldn't be getting married. This passage has something to say about that. But what about someone who's single? How do you distinguish between a violation and an exception? And the short answer is this. You have to read the rest of the Bible. You have to read what the Bible says so you're able to see what is consistent with the pattern, though it may differ in some way. And here it's really easy when you're talking about singleness because John the Baptist, according to Jesus, the greatest man born before his coming, John the Baptist was unmarried. And the Apostle Paul was unmarried. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says there's some advantages to being unmarried. He says, when you're married, sometimes you get in a tug of war. You get in a battle. I want to please God, but my spouse is putting pressure on me. And so you're torn between pleasing spouse and pleasing God. He says, if you're single, you don't have that same battle. So Paul was a single man caring about the ministry, caring about uh, all that God had called him to do. How about Jesus? Jesus was a single man. About what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus didn't get married. So clearly, even though Genesis 2 establishes God's blessing, it is a blessing that we are male and female and that God brings us together in covenant love. And in that context, we become one flesh and children are born. That is a blessing. But it is not God's blessing for every single person. To be single is not a violation of that. Unless, of course, you decide, I just want to live for myself and I don't care about anybody else, so I'm going to be single. That maybe shows a spirit out of keeping with the Bible. I get that. But as you follow God, if you are single, that doesn't mean you are somehow outside God's will. In fact, in fact, let me read to you something Jesus said. He was questioned by some Sadducees. They were trying to set him up on a theological issue because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they thought they'd, they'd put Jesus in a corner by telling a story. They said, you have this woman, and she's married to a man, and he dies. 
And then she marries another man, and he dies, and another he dies, another he dies. There's seven husbands. So they say, okay, Jesus, tell us, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Will she be married to seven different men? How could that be? And their whole point is to try to just make ridiculous the doctrine of the resurrection. But Jesus answers in a way that, that speaks to our time. Listen to what he says in Luke 20. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Now, he doesn't say that no one will be married. He says that they won't get married. They won't be given in marriage. But remember, he's answering the question of the Sadducees who want to know if this woman will have husbands in the resurrection. So clearly, as Jesus sees it, in this age, people get married, but in the age to come, we will not be married. We will not be married. You know what that means? That means that your identity is not bound up with whether you are married or not. In the age to come, God will be all in all. And I think people who've been married will have a special bond with one another. How could they not? I've been married to Linda for 42 years. We've had three daughters whom we've raised. Now we have grandchildren. We accepted Christ together. We've been through good times and bad together. We have loved each other deeply, and we have fought like cats and dogs sometimes. I mean, there is a bond that I think will last forever, but it will change in the resurrection. What that means is our humanity is not tied to whether we are married or not. That's absolutely essential to understand. Marriage is a blessing, but it's not for every person. God has a purpose for each one of us. And if you are married, God blesses that. If you are unmarried, God blesses you there. But what about being lonely? It's not good for a man or a woman to be alone. So they need a mate. Really? Not so. If you read the Bible and you read what the Bible says about friendship, it changes the equation. See, we don't know anything about friendship, not in our culture. We know nothing about friendship. We're bad at it. And that's because we live these, these lives isolated from one another. And, and we live in our very small nuclear families. And so we don't have these bonds that people in past days did, and certainly not according to the biblical vision. As a matter of fact, friendship is central in the kingdom of God. Jesus, in John chapter 15, says to his disciples, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. Isn't that interesting? He says in that same section, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that a one gives one's life for one's friends. In other words, self-sacrificial love for a friend. He tells his disciples, I want you to love each other the way I have loved you. Well, how did he love them? 
He loved them as friends. You don't get deeper than friendship. So the thing is, marriage is a kind of friendship, but it's not like the highest level. It's not like unless you're married, you'll always be alone and you'll never find your soulmate. No, you can find a soulmate in friendship. Great picture of this in the Bible. David, who was to be king, and Jonathan, who was the crown prince. And they meet right after David kills Goliath. You know, we talk about love at first sight. This was friendship at first sight. They just clicked. Have you ever clicked with someone? I'm just, the first time you talked with them, it's like we are kindred spirits. That's what happened to David and Jonathan. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 18 that their souls were knit together. And it says that Jonathan made a covenant with David. That is this sacred bond of friendship with him. And it's a sign of the covenant. You know, in a marriage, sign of the covenant, we exchange marriage rings. That's, that's an emblem of the vow. As an emblem of his vow, he took the things that accompanied his royal status and gave them to David. He gave him his robe. He gave him his tunic, his sword, his bow, his belt. He was saying to David, you are my friend. We are in covenant. All that is mine is yours. And this thing, this thing went on through difficult times. Jonathan's father wanted to kill David, so David was sometimes on the run. At one particularly difficult point, Jonathan, at risk to himself, makes his way to meet with David. And, and it says in the Bible, he strengthened him in the Lord. This was a bond that nothing could break, not even death, because David had, had sworn an oath that should Jonathan, Jonathan die, that David would care and be faithful to his children. So when Jonathan did die in battle, guess what happened? David finds his son, Mephibosheth, who as a little boy was crippled. He found him, brought him into his household, sat him at the king's table, and there, as if he were royalty. David had been elevated as king, but now Mephibosheth is there with him. David keeping his covenant of friendship with Jonathan. Don't tell me that isn't deep and profound and important. That's what we're called to as Christians. In fact, when Jonathan was killed in battle, let me read to you what David said, 2 Samuel 1.26. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Now, that, that verse is very interesting because there are people today who want to say, oh, they had a gay relationship. Now, it's, they say that because, well, in part because they know absolutely nothing about the historical context and, and the way people express their friendship. There is absolutely no grounds for that. It's laughable, but it's very revealing. 
I knew a guy when I was in high school that no matter what you said, no matter what you said, he'd turn it into a dirty joke. So you'd say something and say, oh, man, I didn't mean to say that. But it really wasn't about what you said. It was about what was in his brain, right? It's very revealing about our culture that we can't read a verse like this without sexualizing it. It's very interesting. And it's typical because we think our identity is wrapped up pure and simple in our sexuality. And you know what? That's just the most important thing in the world. There's a very important philosopher. He's, he's, he's not alive today, but he has had a profound impact on the films you watch and the music you hear and what is taught in universities around the world. His name was Michel Foucault. And Foucault said that sex is worth dying for. And he said, sex is more important than your soul. Hugely influential philosopher. But for him, it's all about that. And in our culture, it's all about that. You can't find happiness unless you have a relationship that entails sex. And that's why people get so offended when you have the temerity to suggest there are some boundaries here. That God has set things up to where not everyone should engage in sexual relationships. They're offended because you're trying to strip away from them something so vital and so important because they don't see, they don't see that sex is not their identity. Our identity is children of God, made in the image of God. That's our identity. That's our identity. So as singles, relationships, friendships, not just with other singles, but with couples and their families. I know they talk about their kids incessantly and it drives you crazy. I know that. But if you are friends with someone who has a spouse and children, then those children should matter to you. And if you are married and you have children, you need to see that single Christian as your brother and sister. And the family needs to be opened up to them. And so I'm all for, I'm all for churches having things organized for singles. I'm, I'm all for that, but not exclusively. You know, we just divide people up in their little categories, you know? That's, that's not what we need. What we need more fundamentally is real community, real community. So am I saying that if you're single, you shouldn't seek a mate? Of course I'm not saying that. I'm just saying don't get desperate. You know what I mean? Don't get desperate. Live for God. Live for God. Pursue and deepen your friendships. Know that your identity is not found in any particular relationship, but you are a child of God. Go forward and stay open to possibilities. 
Stay alert to possibilities. When the opportunity comes and something says, hmm, what might be behind that door? Go ahead and push open that door. But don't get desperate because, oh, you have to have a soulmate to find your happiness. No, you need to follow God and you need friendships. And those friendships just shouldn't be, you know, instantly sexualized. See, what happens is this. According to the scripture here, you have a man and a woman and they're united as part of a covenant, a marriage covenant. There is security and safety and a bond there. They become one flesh. The Bible says that they know one another. Yada in Hebrew, it means this experiential knowledge, this, this experiential understanding of the other person. There's a bond that can hardly be described. Yada, or you might say yada yada. Okay? So, so, Marriage covenant and yada yada belong, to, belong together and must not be separated. But what we do in our culture is we separate them. We separate them. And if somebody says, don't separate them, they say, who are you? Who are you? Somehow you're violating my identity because, you know, my identity is wrapped up in this. You're trying to stop my happiness. No, God has ordained it that way. What happens to people is this. They think that they can have these sorts of relationships. They can have yada, yada, and walk away scot-free, but it doesn't work that way. There is a bond that is created. Your very body releases hormones that actually helped to create the bond. That's exactly what you would expect. If God designed this oneness for us as persons and we are body embodied persons, then you would expect that. So there's this bond that forms. That means your body always makes a promise, even if you have no intention of keeping it. A bond is formed even if you don't intend it, it's there. And then the separation is like cutting live flesh, and it's painful, and it hurts. Let me tell you something. The two most prescribed drugs on university campuses for students, you know what they are? Antidepressants and birth control pills. And that is no accident. That is no accident. You have folks that are violating God's intended order, and they pay the consequences for it, spiritually and emotionally. Give me a pill that'll make me feel better. But that's no solution. That's not where, where we want to go. So we want to yield to God's will and God's purpose and experience the blessing that God has for us. And let's be honest, let's be honest. As Christians, we, we want to speak a clear word to our society. We want to say what's right. What gives us the right to be talking about so many issues if we just kind of overlook the issues right in our midst? You know, what, what gives us the right it is not uncommon now, not uncommon at all, for people in churches to live together without being married. That is not uncommon at all anymore. 
I meet people visiting our church. And, and usually it's not said out, but I kind of, oops, I kind of figure it out. I had a couple who came to see me one time who, not at this church, but another one, who uh, they wanted to join the church. They, they wanted to get their relationship on a stronger, firmer foundation. Problem was, they weren't married. They were living together as husband and wife. They weren't married. And I said, well, let me, let me ask you about that. I mean, why is that? It's obvious you love each other. They did love each other. There's no question. They were not promiscuous in the sense they were just running around. They loved each other, and they were living together as husband and wife, but they weren't getting married. Why is that? It turned out, interestingly, it was the woman. She had been through a divorce, and she didn't want to be hurt like that again, so she was holding back. And I don't remember her name now. Let's say it was Jana. I said, Jana, you know you're not going to escape that hurt anyway. If this relationship were to end, you already have a bond. It's going to hurt just as bad. Why not put things in order as God intends? Commit to one another. I'll do the wedding. We'll get ladies in the church to bring food. It won't cost a cent. We can do it next week. They just weren't ready to go there. They just weren't ready to go there. It's not that they didn't love each other, but see, they're not rightly ordering their love. That's the key. Remember, to love the right thing or right person in the right way to the right degree. And I should always love God supremely. And if God tells me this is the way, I need to conform to that. I need to conform. I'm a fool if I don't conform to it. And I need to, to allow his blessing to rest on my life. Now, I know that you'll have couples that live together and they get married. Statistically, their marriages are less likely to last than those that don't live together. But put that aside. I know they love each other and they live together and they get married. All right, fine. But keep in mind what they've done. They have begun their marriage kind of figuring that, yeah, they want to follow God and they want to go to church, but really at the end of the day, they're going to do it their way. They're going to do it their way. It's not really God's way, it's my way. When our ways happen to coincide, then I'll do it God's way. But if mine goes contrary to God's, then God's going to get second place. Is that a good way to start a marriage? Is that a good way to live? We want to live under God's blessing. I do, don't you? We want to live under the blessing of God. Well, then, let's live. And if you're single, live under the blessing of God. Pour yourself into friendships. Know that that is not second best or inferior to marriage. It's different, but it's not second best. When the time comes, if it comes, and God opens the door, you step through it with gratitude and joy. But your life can be blessed either way. You are not defined by any particular relationship, and you're sure not defined by your sexuality. You're defined by the fact that you're created in the image of God. So important to remember and know. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we do get off track more times than we'd like to admit, and that means we have to live off forgiveness, and we thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, not a single one of us in this room or watching online, not a single one of us hasn't sinned repeatedly. Not a single one of us doesn't need forgiveness repeatedly. And we thank you that we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Thank you that, that we don't have to prove our worth. We don't have to clean up ourselves. We can just come to you and find acceptance and love. But we seek one other thing, Lord. We seek your grace to live as you would have us live. Lord, help us to throw off the attitudes and beliefs of this culture and to live like Christians in the midst of it. Fully committed Christians, holding nothing back, serving our God. God, do your work in us, in each one of us. Do your work in each one of us. And Lord, anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, may they meet you as Savior this morning. And not just Savior, but as Lord. We know those two can't be separated. Jesus, we are yours. Take us and use us. Make us holy. Lead us into blessedness, we pray. We pray all this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.